I'm not sure how to follow up after that. That was so good. I feel all of a sudden a whole boatload of pressure to follow up after that one. But thank you, choir. That was awesome. I really enjoyed that. That was worshipful. And I don't know about you all. I can't wait to see the king. I'm ready. If he wants to come back now, have at it. That sounds, that, I don't mind my sermon being interrupted. That would work out well. Now, I have one thing I would like to do. We had earlier in our worship service something called Living Church, and we had Jamie give a testimony. One of the reasons we called it Living Church is that the body of Christ, the church is the body of Christ, and as such, it's a living organism. It's an alive thing. Jesus, by his spirit, is moving and breathing and leading us into truth, and he's working in our midst, and we do that. One of the things we need to do is celebrate as well. And I don't think I've heard us do this. Where is Kay Sovereign? Kay, where are you sitting? I got she knows what I'm going to do and she's she's I'm probably in trouble with Kay later on and I hope I'm not in trouble. Kay, today is your 90th birthday. Happy birthday to Kay Sovereign. Part of our doing that is we are a living church. And so we do that together. And as the living church, we want to come and have a direct encounter through his spirit with his very word. And so that's what we're doing now. So I'd ask you to bow with me as we begin our time with a prayer of illumination where we ask God by his Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart that we may embrace and be embraced by the very truth of God's word. We ask, Father, that by your spirit you would be our teacher and lead us into the truth, into a confrontation with the truth, that our lives would be changed and conformed, that we as believers in Jesus Christ would more and more be changed and transformed into the very image of Jesus, that we would truly be your body walking on earth, imbibed and empowered and breathed in and lived in by the Holy Spirit. So confront us, we humbly ask, with your word now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to read our scripture that the sermon that the Word of God is uh, based on this morning that we're looking at. The proclamation of Scripture comes from Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Friends, this is the very word of God. As we have been proceeding through the Gospel of Mark, and we're looking at this, we're asking the question, who is the real Jesus? In other words, the key issue before us is who is the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus revealed to us in the Scriptures, not a Jesus we make up, not a Jesus of our own desires, a Jesus of our own concocting, not a Jesus that the world says or society says, but the Jesus of the Bible. See, if you're trying to figure out or figure Jesus out, you are still in charge. If you're determining, rather than coming under the Bible, if you're determining who Jesus is, listen to the words carefully, you're determining. He's your Jesus and not the real Jesus as he's revealed to us. If you're determining who he is, what he's all about, you are in charge. The issue before us, and the issue before us in this particular passage is, do you submit to the Jesus of the Bible? Do you submit to the Jesus as he's given to us, not as we make up? The Jesus who comforts us and the Jesus who challenges us. The Jesus who says things and we go, oh, I like that. And the Jesus who says things and we go, I'm not sure of that. Do I have to? The Jesus who comforts and the Jesus who challenges. This text challenges us to see whether you see and understand who Jesus is. And in doing so, asking the question, do you submit to him? And the text does so in two ways. As we ask, who is the true Jesus? We learn, first of all, that there were false claims about Jesus. In other words, that's just not a new thing in our day and age. Even in Jesus' age, there were many false claims about him, and we'll see some of those. And then the true reality of Jesus, who the Jesus of the Bible is, the Jesus that you can know personally, the Jesus who can comfort you and change you, the Jesus who can challenge you. First of all, some of the false claims about Jesus. First, I want to make a quick word about how Mark and his gospel put some things together. In other words, a rhetorical technique that Mark uses here and in several other places in his gospel. This is the first place. Mark uses a technique that some commentators like to call a sandwiching technique. And in first service, it was hard to say this. It's getting even harder now. It's closer to lunchtime. I'm struggling more with the sandwich technique than I did at 8.30. But it's just like, what is a sandwich? It's meat. It's the heart of something in between the two pieces of bread. Mark likes in several places, and this is the first place in his gospel, to sandwich material in order to emphasize a main point. In other words, he will separate parts of an overall literary unit in order to emphasize what he wants to emphasize. So here, what Mark does is he separates verses 20 and 21 and verses 31 to 35 with his main point of verses 22 to 30. Commentators like to point out that Mark does this. He separates the incident of Jesus's family. That's what verses 20 to 21 is. They're basically trying, what are they doing? They're trying to seize him. They're trying to get him. By interrupting it with the accusation of the scribes and his answer to them in verses 22 and through 30, and then returning to Jesus's family in verses 31 
to 35. So we are as readers to compare the rejection of Jesus by his own family. And you have to know the Bible is true. When you have, think who his family is. You know, would Mark, would the Holy Spirit have inspired this? Would this not be true? They're saying Mary, his brothers. We know one of his brothers was the Apostle James. Now this, he, they're basically saying at this point, they didn't get who Jesus was. They didn't understand fully his identity. So you have the rejection of Jesus by his own family, and then his statement of forming the end of the sandwich, the other piece of forming a new family. Who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There were a lot of things. See, the overall point behind this, what we're looking at this morning, the overall point behind this entire unit is that as Jesus was doing an awful lot of things, we have a lot of healings, exorcisms, he's making some incredible claims, there were an awful lot of theories about who he was and an awful lot of false theories about who he was. And Jesus here is emphasizing the truth. One commentator sums up this passage very well when he says, Jesus performed mighty deeds, which did in fact call forth the charge that he was a magician, in vogue with demonic forces. But what does this charge mean? It means not least that Jesus was perceived to be posing a serious threat to the social, cultural, and religious world of his day. His whole career raised a deeply problematic question. Either these things are the work of none other than God himself, Israel's God, acting in a new way within his people's history, or they are the work of the arch-deceiver, leading the people astray. See, what's going on here is Jesus is performing mighty deeds, and he's making some enormous, incredible, life-changing, and history-altering claims. Think about some of the claims of Jesus. He's referred to himself as the Son of Man. In that day, that term would be familiar, and they would remember it and hearken back to it from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, that says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. Put that together when Jesus makes the claim that he's the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In Daniel's day, it was prophesied that one like a son of man would come, and who would he be? He would basically be the king of kings. Now, do you see when Jesus refers that to himself, what he's claiming? That he's claiming to be that son of man of Daniel chapter 7. How about when he claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath? The Sabbath was one of those great, call it boundary markers of Israel of the Old Testament. It was a major identity and worldview marker of the Israelites that has its source and meaning. And Jesus is saying, you want to know who the Sabbath is? You want to see the true meaning, the Lord of the Sabbath? Look at me. These are earth-shattering claims. And as we read the gospel, you've got to be confronted with what Jesus is actually saying about himself, what he's claiming about himself. Or how about that he's claiming to be the fulfillment of the work of the temple? 
See, what was the temple? In Israel's day, was, the temple was the place where you went and made sacrifice. And you made sacrifice to find forgiveness, atonement for sins. Jesus is claiming the temple's unnecessary because he's the true temple. Now imagine you're part of the crowd, part of the audience, you're part and you're witnessing these things and you're hearing these things and you're seeing these things. What would you think about Jesus? His family decided he was a lunatic. You know, C.S. Lewis has that great line that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's absolutely who he said he was. He's Lord. If you look at the text, his family, this is actually hard to swallow until you read the text. The text says that his family's going around saying he was out of his mind. They're walking around saying he's crazy. See, and that's actually an especially strong word. In the original, it means they tried to arrest him. They tried to tie him up. They tried to grab him. Modern equivalent, here's Mary and James and the brothers and the family of Jesus, Baker acting Jesus. Are you picturing that? Notice also among the false claims about Jesus, they're saying he's so crazy, you can dismiss him. You can try to destroy him. What the only illogical and irrational theory is, the only one, is to say, he's a nice guy. He doesn't upset the apple cart. He's just a friendly guy. He's all about compassion and tolerance. See, yes, he was all those things, but we have to recognize that's not his primary claim. He is saying his primary claim is that in him, the long-awaited, long-anticipated kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God has come in his person. That with his coming in the flesh, with his incarnation, the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us, his dwelling among us was the kingdom of God actually coming to earth. Tim Keller makes an incredible point, I think, asking a very fascinating question. He goes on and he says, this leaves us with an absolutely incredible historical question about what sort of life, what sort of character must, have, must Jesus have exhibited in order to convince thousands to submit to him in light of the absolute egocentricity at the face value, not in reality, but in the face value of his claims. Dr. Keller writes, he says, it must have been something like what you actually have in the Bible, only probably more so, even because what his followers saw has the staggering egocentricity of his claims, along with what no other divine claimant ever showed. That is the staggering non-egocentricity of his life. His love for the poor, his love for the marginal, his love for the suffering, the staggering egocentricity of his claims along with the staggering humility and non-egocentricity of his life, were like sun and frost, and sun and frost. The practical and challenging question that is being put before us through this text is, what do you do with something like that? What do you do with someone like that? See, this is not something when you're confronted with the truth about Jesus that you can somehow stay neutral about. That you can somehow stay on the surface of. 
See, this is the issue. Discipleship, and discipleship is a major theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. Discipleship is all about worship. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about that. Where your treasure is. What is your treasure? It is that which you value most. That which is most important in your life. That which is most significant, which you most spend the most time thinking about. Your life revolves around. You're driven towards. Saying your heart's going to follow your treasure. Your heart's going to think about your treasure. Your heart will be, in other words, with what you love. Which is why discipleship is all about loving Jesus. As another commentator put it, Jesus is confronting us here with the truth that he's either the one who brought God's kingdom, that we are to love with all our hearts, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, or he's a dangerous madman. His family is dismissing him. The scribes, the Pharisees, they're dismissing him. See what's going on in the overarching and the overall of this text. Another writer puts it this way. He says, the charge against Jesus is not simply a bit of unpleasant religious propaganda. It is the only way that his opponents could avoid the clear implication of the ministry they were witnessing. Either the redefinition of the kingdom that Jesus claimed to be affecting was real and God-given, or there was a dark power at work in him. Stronger yet than the dark powers that had gripped afflicted individuals in which he exercised their demons. See, those are some of the false claims about Jesus. Those are some of the falsehoods that were going on about him. What about the true reality about Jesus? Because here we're confronted with the truth. Look with me at verse 22. And you need to see this in context. We're going to get to some of the more difficult verses of this passage, but please see it in context. In verse 22, they accused Jesus of doing his work by the hand of Beelzebub. In other words, the prince of demons. They're accusing Jesus of being in in league with Satan. That was their false claim. Verses 23 and 27 is Jesus' answer to their false claim, which reveals the truth about him. As Francis Schaeffer would call it, the true truth, true reality. It says, and he called them to him and he said to them, and notice this because this is important. And I sometimes wonder, in fact, I don't know if I've noticed it. Having looked at this passage, I don't know how many hundreds of times before in my life, but maybe noticing for the first time, he spoke to them in parables. Speaking to them in parables, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has written up, risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds that strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Take a look at this with me. This is absolutely masterful, what Jesus is doing. First of all, he's speaking to them in parables. Let me comment on that for a quick second. That means he's giving them an object lesson. He's giving them, he's illustrating a truth by way of an object lesson. He's speaking in metaphors to teach and illustrate the truth in order to get across 
reality. And commentators like to point out, they say in this, he likens the world. What is he doing in this parable is he's likening the world to a kingdom. A kingdom that's dominated by a strong man, a warlord, an evil prince. And he says, look, a general never wins a battle by attacking his own flanks. You know what he's kind of saying? He's saying, would that be logical? A general never wins a battle by attacking his own flanks. So Satan can't possibly be doing that here. So he goes on to say what is needed is a stronger man. What is needed is a stronger one. And of course he's alluding what? He's alluding to himself. He's making a claim here about himself. And again, commentators point out this stronger one has arrived. The stronger one is on the scene. And the strong one finds his house having been burgled. Jesus' hearings or healings, Jesus' healings, particularly his exorcisms, are signs that God's kingdom has arrived, that God's kingdom is on the move. The kingdom in which people who have been held captive will at last be set free. Come to face to face with the claim that is being made here. Jesus is the stronger man who binds the strong man. So there's a strong man in the world who's deceiving people, who's keeping people from the truth. And what Jesus is saying is, see, this is a powerful depiction of Jesus' ministry of liberation. He says, if you're going to receive the truth and the truth will set you free, I first, as the stronger man, have to bind up the strong man so that you can hear and receive and yield to the truth that I am and the truth that I bring. I love how Tim Keller puts it, describing this teaching of Jesus. What does this teach us and show us of Jesus' mission and ministry? He writes, Jesus is in a sense saying, I want you to think of the world. Picture the world. Think of death. Think of disease. Think of injustice. Think of poverty. Think of hunger. Think of the world as it is. Think of its brokenness. Do you think someone who is only a teacher, see, Jesus is not denying being a teacher, but do you think someone who is only a teacher is going to overcome all of that? Do you think somehow education by itself is going to overcome all that? He's saying, I'm going to have to come and do something for you first before I can ever do anything in you. I have to do something for you before you're able to hear my teaching. He says, before I can teach you, I have to rescue you. I have to deliver you. So before I can be a teacher of love and peace, I am the divine warrior of prophecy. So he says, I've entered the strong man's house as a divine warrior to conquer, to redeem, to release, to do what God promised all the way back in the book of Genesis that he would one day do. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Immediately after the fall of man, I will put enmity. This is what God is saying, that first gospel promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you hear that? Even way back in Genesis 3, the cross is laying its dark shadow across the pages of the gospel 
even at that early, early stage. Because look at what is being written way back here in Genesis, in this initial gospel promise. It's saying that Satan will bruise Jesus' heel. That's how the cross is being depicted, as bruising Jesus' heel, but on the cross, Jesus will crush Satan's head. In other words, Jesus is the divine warrior who defeats evil. And he says, how does he defeat evil while still saving us? While not destroying us? See, how does he defeat evil without destroying us? Who are, think about it, one of the claims here is that who are also evil ourselves. By taking the worst evil has to offer and taking it upon himself so it wouldn't fall upon us. What Jesus did on the cross was he took upon himself the divine judgment for evil. The divine judgment upon himself. He received the sentence of the judge himself. As Tim Keller says, Jesus then becomes strong enough to be weak and thereby changes forever what it means to defeat evil. And of course, this brings us to the very difficult, very misunderstand verses of verses 29 and 30, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. One of the most difficult and, dare I say, misunderstood verses in all of the Bible. First of all, can I give you a word of comfort? If you're sitting here going, oh no, have I committed that sin? The sin against the Holy Spirit? Let me assure you, you probably haven't if you're worried about it. That's the first thing. But then let's take this apart and think about what this is saying. See, what does the Holy Spirit do? See, what does the text say? Whoever blasphemes against, very specifically, against the Holy Spirit. This doesn't say whoever lies, doesn't say whoever gossips, doesn't say whoever lusts, doesn't even say whoever murders. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. So we need to ask ourselves that question, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And the way to go about doing that is ask ourselves the question, what does the Holy Spirit do? What is the chief job, the chief ministry, the fundamental ministry of the Holy Spirit? And I think the fundamental ministry of the Holy Spirit, as described by the Gospels, is to shine a spotlight upon Jesus. In John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus was describing the ministry of the Spirit by saying, He will take from what is mine and make it known to you. John 16, verse 14. Such an important verse to remember. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, the job description of the Holy Spirit is to take from what is Jesus's. What is Jesus? It's everything he accomplished in bringing us salvation. And the Spirit's job is to quicken that, to make that known, to apply that to our hearts. I think the best illustration I've ever heard on that, I've probably given it here before, is the one from J.I. Packer's book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, where he likens the Holy Spirit to a floodlight. He says the job of the Holy Spirit is to be a floodlight, shining all the attention. See, the Holy Spirit is the most unself-centered being 
in the universe. The entire job of the Holy Spirit is to shine the attention, shine the light upon Jesus. I was thinking about one of the times growing up. You might find this hard to believe about myself, but when I was 15 years old, I loved to play basketball. See, at age 13, 14, 15, I was still 5'3". The problem is I never grew past 5'3". So at 13, 14, 15, I was deceiving myself into thinking, oh, I could play bad. I loved basketball, and I would practice day and night. And my father, loving me the way he did, decided since I like to practice at night, I'd practice in the winter, I'd practice till my hands bled. I'd pra- I was always a driven person. That part hasn't changed. But what did he do? He shined a spotlight on our, the side of our garage to shine the light on the basket so that I could practice at 9, 10, 11, 12, usually until the neighbors were calling my parents somewhere around midnight going, excuse me, can you get your son inside? We're trying to sleep. The job was, the fact is, though, the job of the light was to shine on the basket. The job of the Holy Spirit is to say, look at Jesus. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done. Isn't he great? Isn't he awesome? Don't you need him? Do you see your need for him? You can't possibly save yourself. So to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, very logically, is the only sin that can't be forgiven because it's the sin of rejecting God's solution to your sin, which is Jesus. So if you see your need for Jesus, if that's the Holy Spirit doing that. He's opened your mind. He's opened your heart to see your need for Jesus. Again, quoting Tim Keller, he says, if you refuse to believe the gospel, and that's what the Holy Spirit's there to do, help shine the light on Jesus, shine the light on the gospel. He says, if you refuse to believe the gospel and offend the most basic work of the Spirit, then there's no way to forgiveness. That's why the sin against the Holy Spirit can't be, oh, I overrate again. That's it. I must have sinned against the Holy Spirit. I lied again. That's No, the sin against the Holy Spirit is rejecting the work of the mediator, Jesus. Dr. Keller writes, if you believe the gospel, then any sin is forgivable, no matter how heinous. But if you don't believe in the gospel, no sin is forgivable. He says, so Jesus' statement of verse 28 is that all the sins, and do you hear that promise? All the sins of blasphemies of men will be forgiven. We read that verse with such panic in our hearts, we fail to see the beauty of that, that all and every and every conceivable and every possible sin is forgiven. We should be jumping up and down with utter joy at the reality and the goodness of Jesus and the reality of forgiveness. And of course, forgiveness is not the only thing you get in the gospel. Look with me at verses 31 to 35. Verses 31 to 35 says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Of course, Jesus answers as he always does in this kind of cryptic way. Don't you love some of Jesus' answers? Who are my mother and my... It's almost you're seeing, you're thinking this philosophy. Who are my mother and my brothers? But he's not being cryptic. He's getting at a wonderful truth. 
because looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brother. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, commentators rightly remind us that the kingdom story cannot be reduced to just terms of individual, me and Jesus ethics, or individual response to grace. Jesus is forming a new family. Jesus is forming a new community. And we need to see just how shocking, how puzzling, how utterly What's the word I'm looking for? How utterly even offensive this would have been to a first century Jewish mindset. One historian put it this way. He says, in a peasant society where familial relations provided one's basic identity, in other words, it's who you were, this was shocking in the extreme. For in first century Jewish culture for which the sense of familial loyalty was a basic symbol of the prevailing worldview, It cannot but have been utterly devastating. Jesus is here proposing to treat his families as a surrogate family. This has, for one, a substantial positive result. Jesus intended his followers to inherit all the closeness and all the mutual obligations to one another that belonged with family membership in that close-knit family-based society. It also carried fairly clear, challenging consequences in that society And that is to be a member of one family, the family of Jesus, meant sitting close or sitting loose to any membership in any other. The practical implications of this, what is he saying? He's saying family, the biological family, is important. There are plenty of biblical commands about it, but it is not to be idolized. We are not to have a family idolatry. Jesus is teaching here your primary family, your number one family, your eternal family is the church, is the body of Christ, is the covenant community. This was certainly shocking in the first century, and I bet you it's shocking for us to hear today. Because this means that no matter what your experience of family has been, some very good, some quite damaging, you can find love, belonging, your truest identity, your truest sense of security in the family of God. We can know we are loved. No matter what your experience is in your biological family, what Jesus is claiming here, when he says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters, is your deepest security is found in the family of God. Tim Keller points out that the best commentary on this, maybe the most subversive commentary on this, is found in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Dr. Keller writes, he says, there Jesus tells about a young man who takes his entire half of the family inheritance and wastes it and himself in a life of sin, but then comes back and is accepted back into the family by his loving father. But wait, how can he come back? The prodigal can only come back in and receive clothes, receive food, receive capital out of the elder brother's wealth 
See, think about this. He asked for his inheritance. He received his inheritance. He got his inheritance. He spent his inheritance, which means everything that's left of the fathers belongs to whom? The elder brother. So when he comes back, if he's going to receive clothes, whose clothes will they be? The elder's brother. Whose food will it be? The elder brother's. Whose capital will it be? It's all out of the elder brother's wealth at his expense. Dr. Keller writes in the story, the elder brother hates this, is angry at this, is mad at this, refuses to come in. But he says this is Jesus' way to point out that he is the true elder brother, that Jesus himself is the true elder brother who willingly brings us into the father's family. How do we get into the father's family? Only at Jesus' expense. Only by Jesus losing everything do we get to come into the Father's family. He died for us. He was plundered for us. We sit at the Father's table dressed in Jesus' clothes of righteousness with his ring on our finger all through him. We must celebrate and live out the fact that we are members of a kingdom family and it all came at the expense of our big brother, Jesus Christ. What a big brother. Who is the family of God? Who is my mother, my sister, my brothers? Who is our ultimate? Jesus. Our ultimate big brother. Our ultimate divine warrior. What a savior. What a king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is our divine warrior. We thank you. We see through the misunderstandings of who he is. He's not crazy. He is certainly not in league with Beelzebub. But we see here that he is the divine warrior who came and on our behalf lost everything. So that we, at his expense, could be brought in. Father, I pray that you would teach us to always drink in these truths. Help us. I think our number one prayer has to be, help us understand the gospel better. We never get past the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.